0: You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God, and we pray that this message helps you do just that. How are you Doing? We are really glad that you're here with us. So let me tell you as we get started that. Uh, I, I knew pretty early on that I was called to be a pastor. I became a Christian at 19. It was really only about three or four weeks after that that I started to feel like maybe God would call me uh, to do that. And I remember we were at a Wednesday night church service at the church that we attended. And uh, we were standing in the parking lot. And I told my girlfriend, now my wife of almost 27 years, that, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I'll let her know. And... uh and so, and I said, you know, the message that the pastor gave, um, I think I could do that. And uh, I, I, I think God's calling me to be, to be a pastor. And my, my girlfriend, now wife, uh, says to me, are you sure about that? Do you remember high school? She's like, you should. You were there for five years. And uh, wow. All right. So, um, well, anyway, so I felt, I felt called and uh, I was, I was, going I had started college and I was getting a, uh, I was getting a communications degree. I had kind of, I was literally the typical college student kind of moving from major to major. I was a music major and then, uh, but I didn't want to be in jazz. Um, and so then I, I changed communications and then I changed schools and and I started getting a theology and I, I got a theology degree. And, um, but it took probably about three or four years for, to get my very first opportunity to teach, uh, which I was super excited about. And uh, the church that we went to, they had these Monday night classes, and they would do, you know, uh, they would run a couple times a year, four weeks, six weeks. Well, there was this four-week series of classes, and they had, uh, they gave me my opportunity to teach. And they let me teach uh, four weeks in the book of Jude. If you're not aware, Jude is this little, right before the book of Revelation, at the end of the Old uh, New Testament, there's this one chapter book uh, called Jude. Anyway, so they, I, I, they gave me my first teaching assignment. They were like, four weeks, how much could this 22-year-old kid mess things up? So they, they let me teach, and uh, it was on Monday nights. Now, typically the way it worked is that these Monday night classes would start out, you'd maybe start out with, you know, 20 people, and then you'd end with 10, something like that. Um, I started with about 20, 25 people. I ended up with 50 by the, end, by the time it was over. And so the church staff was very happy with me that people were, were coming out. Oh, thank you. I, I, I wasn't expecting that. But what I pre- I, I'll let old Bob know uh, that you guys are so appreciative. But I really appreciate that. Anyway, so uh, at the end of the class, they, asked, uh, they would ask people to fill out evaluations of, you know, what they did—they like the instructor. Did they like the topic? Did they like the time? You know, did they like the food that was being served? Whatever. And so, um, and this was all old school. So this is all people filling out the stuff by hand. And um, so, and I, so we finished the class, and then I put all the reviews in this folder, and I'm supposed to turn them in uh, to the pastor that oversaw that once it, it ended. So, but I finished the class that night, and I'm driving home, and I have all the reviews. So I'm looking at them as I'm driving as I'm driving home. And that way, if there's any bad ones, I can just toss them out the windows as I'm driving home. No, I'm just kidding. So, I, um, so I'm looking. I've got like 50-something reviews. And, I mean, there's just glowing reviews. We love Bob. Bob's great. You know, young guy. He's doing awesome. Th- anyway, so good. And then this one guy, because there's always this one guy. And, um, and he was... And he, didn't, he wasn't even that critical, but he was a little bit critical. But he's like, you know, Bob's okay, but he tells too many stories. And that was his thing. And uh, now I want you to think about this, if you would, for just a moment. I've got 50 reviews that say the class was fantastic, and I've got one guy that didn't love it. I want you to think about which one I obsessed over. Um, and, and, yeah, the, the same one you probably would obsess over too. And so I get home, and I, can, I, and I am on a mission I'm going to figure out who that guy is. And so because of the time, this was like 1997 or so, uh, I said, I'm, you know, because we had a sign-in sheet. So I'm, I took the sign-in sheets from all four weeks. And I took his evaluation. And I started going, I started doing like a CSI forensic analysis. And I'm like, okay, see that? You see that? See how he kind of, when he does that lowercase f, you see what he does right there? And then you see that? And I, oh, I figured out who that guy was. And um, he got a stern look for me the next week at church. And, um, but listen, and and can I tell you this, that for about, for about the next, and by the way, after that class, it went so well. All these doors started opening for me to teach in different environments, different places. And uh, it was amazing. And, um, but for the next year, every time I taught, I thought about that guy and that guy's dumb comment. And, um, and, you know, eventually you, you just got to, accept who you are. And, uh, you know, now 27 years later, 28 years later, the only time I think about that guy is to tell this story. And by the way, I'll just, if you just want to know what the number one criticism people have of me, and this is just, uh, you know, it'll just save you the trip to Yelp, um, is uh, the number one criticism people have of me or of Calvary is they'll say, well, Pastor Bob tells too many stories. And um, so let me tell you two things that, um, give you the spoiler alert, number one, um, that isn't going to change. And, uh, and if that's a problem, then we got a problem. And, um, and number two, you know who else told a lot of stories and made it a primary component of his teaching ministry? Uh, Jesus. So checkmate, I win. Let me tell you a story about that. And so anyway, now here's why I tell you all of this, is because we've all had moments where we've we've sought to make decisions or determinations about ourselves or about our future because we've been trying to please the wrong people. And w- so sometimes, sometimes it's innocuous. Sometimes it's, well, someone wants us to go somewhere and do something, and we don't really want to go, but we don't want to make them feel bad. And then if they feel bad, they're going to make us feel bad, and so we just kind of do it. There's other times where it's a little more serious. There's other times where... Um, some have, people have gotten into careers, and they've kind of pursued a path in their life that they have no desire to do, all because they're trying to make someone else, a parent, a teacher, a coach, somebody else, happy. Listen, sometimes we'll believe things about ourselves that someone told us, that someone inferred about us, just kind of these comments that people will make. And, and we spend so much of our life trying to prove that person, trying to prove that comment, trying to prove that thing to be wrong. My friends, I want to tell you this. It's no way to live. And that's why God wants to give us an entirely different track to run on. That instead of living for the crowd, we can live for an audience of one. That you can live your life to please God and when you do, you will find your purpose, your fulfillment, and your joy in him. And I am telling you, it is the best possible way to live. And we're going to see this principle played out in admittedly kind of extreme terms. But it's still so vitally important for us. Now, if you, we're just kind of catching you up. Uh, we're in message number 22 in our series in the book of Acts. And if you aren't aware, and maybe you're newer to Calvary, you're like, what's the book of Acts? Well, the book of Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, technically. But the book of Acts is the story of the growth, development, and expansion of the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. And as we've been following the story, now we're following these two, two guys, two apostles named Paul and Barnabas who are on what's called their first missionary journey, preaching the gospel outside of Israel and establishing churches in that area. So I'm, I'll, I'll show you this map, and this will be the last time we look at this map. And everybody has loved this map for whatever reason. And then two weeks from now, we'll do the second missionary journey. We'll start a new map. There's a little thing in between we've got to talk about next week. But, uh, so there's no map next week. But anyway, so they start out in Antioch, in this church in Antioch, which is really Jerusalem is here. So this is outside of Israel. This kind of becomes one of the big headquarters of the church. And so this is called Antioch of Syria. Paul and Barnabas get sent out. They go to Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. From there, they go to a region called Pamphylia and make it up to this area, uh, another Antioch called Antioch in Pisidia. They the last last week we were there. He preaches this incredible message in the synagogue there. He's going to leave there, and the, we left them last time. They just arrived at Iconium. Some things are going to happen in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, which is what our time together is going to be spent. And then they're going to make it back home. And so we'll talk about that um, in, in just. Uh, we'll talk about that in our time together. And here's the thing that's important for us to understand: is that Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. We are going to see things just go to the extreme ends of the pendulum. It's going to be, we love Paul, we want to kill Paul. Paul is awesome. If we ever see him again, we're going to wipe him out. And then some people are going to be somewhere in between. And by the way, it's not even different people. Sometimes it's the same people who start out saying they love Paul and then later they, 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 they want to kill him. And so what we're going to watch, and this is the thing that I want us to focus on, we're going to watch these two guys not be phased by the crowd. Why? Because they've simply decided that they're not going to live their lives based on what the crowd has to say. They're going to live their lives based on what God has to say about them. And the results are so much better, and it leads to a life that has much greater joy. So we're going to start in uh, Acts chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. And here's what we read. It says, Now it happened in Iconium that when they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness of, to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by the apostles. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews, part decided with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding regions, and they were preaching the gospel there. And if you pause there and give me your attention... If we're going to talk about how to live for an audience of one, there's three things we have to do, and here's the first one if you're a note-taker. Number one is that I need to ignore fickle people. We need to ignore fickle people. I want you to notice what happens. Paul and Barnabas arrive in Iconium, and they do the thing that they've done throughout this entire missionary journey. They arrive at a city, and they find where the local synagogue is, or sometimes there's multiple synagogues, but they, they go to a synagogue, and the reason why they do that makes total sense because these are... Jews who believe in the God of Israel. They believe the Old Testament Scriptures. And they're going to now build on that and tell them about Jesus, the Messiah. People start believing. Then there's Gentiles who start believing. And then a church begins to form. So this is the same this, – this conforms to the same pattern that they've been doing throughout this entire journey. But what happens is, is that people are hearing the Gospel. They're hearing Paul and Barnabas talk about Jesus. They're very excited they're, they're, they're fired up, but then I want you to notice what we said in verse two, but unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute because God is do, allowing them to perform signs, but there's still people who are just kind of poisoned by this. And that's why we get to, when we read this, it's like the city is divided. Half the people hate Paul and Barnabas. Half the people love them. And there's one group that says, Um, There's a plot to kill them. They've decided, you know what? The best thing to settle this is maybe some homicide. And and then Paul and Barnabas say, you know what? We're going to go to the next town. Now, I want you to notice, and this is important. I want you to notice how people's minds were poisoned by those who didn't believe. There's always going to be people in your life who don't believe. That is, that they not just don't follow Jesus, but they're going to actively try to keep you from following him. And there's always going to be fickle people who not only don't have a vision for their own life, they certainly don't, uh, they they know why yours isn't going to work either. And here's the reason why this is important. Because the last thing that we want to do is ask advice or seek counsel from people whose minds are poisoned. And so the question then becomes, I mean, so Because none of us is all-knowing, none of us are all wise, none of us are all powerful, and none of us know the right thing to do in every single situation, which means there's always going to be moments in our lives when we need to seek wise counsel from people. So how do we seek wise counsel? Who do we get it from? Who do we get wise counsel from so we know we're being led in the right direction? Well, there's a thing that I've, and I've talked about this in the past, I, I feel like I don't talk about it enough, but I call this the wisdom matrix. And that is that I'm looking for three characteristics of people that when, I, if I'm looking for counsel, I want people that have three things that I, I want to receive from and then begin to move in. And so what are they? If you're a note taker, they're on the second page of your notes. But the first thing is this, is I'm looking for people that love God. As a Christian, that means I'm looking for someone that shares the worldview that I have. That they want to honor God with their decisions and they want me to honor God with my decisions. The second thing is, not only do they love God, but they love you. And, and what I mean by that is, is that they, they care about me. They care about what's best for me. They're emotionally vested in, in our relationship. But listen, do you know that you can have people who love God and love you, but are a complete mess? You ever meet some of those folks? I know some of you might be sitting next to one of those folks, so just stay very still as I'm sitting <laughs> So, <laughs> but here's what I mean by that, is that if you're, looking, if you're looking for financial advice, what do you want? You want someone that, uh, and this is number three in your notes, and that is that they are where you want to be. So that is that I, wa- I want someone that loves God, I want someone that loves me, and if I need financial advice, I want someone that's done well, that's made wise choices. But if it's like, yeah, listen, man, I'm going to talk to you, because we know that there are, if, if, if it's like, hey, look, they love God, they love you, and they've been bankrupt twice, like, you might just be like, hey, man, and they're like, I'm going to tell you, and maybe you take that, and you just, maybe you make the decision, I'm going to do the opposite of everything they tell me. That might not be a bad decision. And so, but sometimes, there it's like, hey, they love God, they love you, and you need relationship advice, but they've been divorced five times. Uh, I mean, unless you're asking for the number of a good lawyer, you might not want to listen. And so, This is the thing that happens is that once again, this is why, listen, here's a proverb that we should have memorized, all right? Proverbs uh, chapter 24, verse 6. It says this, for by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Now, let me tell you what we do. Um, and I've just, I've I've seen this so often in the church, we kind of rush to the end of the verse. You know, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety, and that's true. But the thing that qualifies the counselors is what happens in the first part of the verse. Solomon says, by wise counsel, you wage your own war, which means hopefully you're getting counsel from people who have waged Their own war, and those people have been victorious in their own war. And the end result is you're going to wage your own war, and when you get wise counsel, there's going to be safety, or literally in Hebrew, deliverance. Because you're safe after the war that you've waged is over. Now, what's so powerful here is that Paul and Barnabas have the wisdom to say, hey, we're going to stay. And I think as we read through this chapter, one of the things that I hope you're thinking about is. I mean, would I have stayed that long? What, I mean, because some of us, there's a level of opposition we're like, oh, I'm out of here. I'm done. I don't want any opposition. I don't want any problems. And some of us would be, say, hey, we're out. And then some of us, maybe we'd stay longer than we should. But Paul and Barnabas seem to kind of stay as long as they need to. And the reason is because they're not staying um, because they're listening to the crowd. They're staying for the appropriate amount of time because they're listening to God and they're just having God tell them what to do or not do. This takes a level of spiritual awareness that has to be developed because when we talk about um, self-awareness, I mean, I want you to think about that for for a minute. Like um, when we talk about like self-awareness physically, like spiritual awareness, I mean, I've been a Christian for 30 years. And um, I, I, I have gotten fairly good at knowing and kind of observing what God is doing in particular situations. I mean, obviously not perfect, but um, I, I've, I've been able to observe a lot of what God is doing in particular situations. But sometimes, and some of us are good at parts of it, not good at other parts. I think sometimes like the um, physical awareness is the thing that I'm, I'm not really good at. I, I, am, not, um, I am not the person that when you walk up to me, I'm going to notice that you changed your hairstyle. Um, and, and you know, like my wife has realized that after 27 years almost being married, is that she just, and she's been, she, she, she used to be annoyed by it. And now she just, like, I live my whole life in my head. And so I'm just like, there is a universe of things happening between my ears, you know. And so I'm just, um, so sometimes I'm not like totally engaged at what's happening out here. And so what will happen is, my wife is kind enough to kind of like wave the flag for me to let me know, hey, here's something you should pay attention to. So I'll come home from church on any given day, and she'll say, hey, um, I did my hair, and um, what do you think? And it's just like, now is your moment to compliment me. You know what I mean? And this, and I am so grateful for that because it does. I just wouldn't notice. I, I'm just, I'm just not something. I mean, I, I had this conversation with someone. And I said to the, uh, uh, it was the girl, I'm like, I don't know, something's different about you, and I just can't put my finger on it. And, um, and, and she said, well, it, it's because I'm blonde now. And this is a girl that had long, dark hair. She dyed it blonde. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's different. I just, I can't see it, you know. And it's just like, wow, okay, buddy. Um, now, uh, <laughs> I, you, I had this a few months ago. I, um, I woke up, I had a terrible stomach ache. And, uh, I, you know, my wife, cause she's like, you know, Dr. Quinn medicine woman, uh, for the eight of you that might remember that rare reference of a TV show from 30 years ago. But, uh, <laughs> she, um, she started, she's helping me diagnose it. She's like, okay, is it a sharp pain or a dull pain? And I'm like, yes, totally. And she's like, okay, it can't be sharp and dull. And I'm like, I, I think this one is. And, um, so then she says, point to the spot. I point to the spot. She says, okay, Bob, you're hungry. And, uh, Sure enough, I ate something. I was right as rain. And um, now, let me tell you what happens. And sometimes, you know, I mean, or it's, it's, it's hilarious. But emotionally, it can be a different story where it takes a little bit of work for us to emotionally figure out what we're feeling. And because many times, listen, we're, uncomfortab- like we're uncomfortable with what how we're feeling. And so we default to certain unhealthy emotions that we feel comfortable with. Now, for many guys, anger is the default emotion. But the problem is, is that, and this, here's the challenge with anger. Sometimes anger is the right emotion, but everything can't make you angry. And which is a thing, just an epidemic that we're seeing culturally. But what happens is, is that we can use certain emotions like anger to protect ourselves from dealing with the real things that we should be feeling. So, about nine years ago, this kind of came to a head in, in my life, and anger is something I really struggled with through my 20s and 30s. And uh, I turned 40, and I just said, I, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I don't want to be an angry person. And um, so I started carrying this chart around. I'll show it to you in a minute. But I started carrying this chart around that would help me know what I'm feeling. Because sometimes I'd be like, I'm mad. Like, no, you're not mad. You just don't know. You don't have enough vocabulary to explain what it is that you're feeling. And so, and, I, and I, I, I tell, and by the way, every time I talk about this, there's always guys that come up to me, hey, pastor, this is what I struggle with. And man, I just have so much compassion for guys that are struggling um, with anger because I just know, I know it, it, it's, it's, like you're, it's like a prison that you're in. And I, I used to say that anger is like the Iron Man suit. Um, it is the thing that you use to protect yourself from getting hurt, but it's also the thing that's isolating you from everything else in life. And so, and by the way, you're also unknowingly hurting everyone else in the process. So let me give you let me give you an example. This is the chart. Um, it doesn't matter where I am. I I have this thing on me at all times. Um, wherever I am, this thing is like within arm's length of me. And so, once again, I lived a lot of years of my life right here. This is what I thought every emotion was. I had no idea what everything else here was. This was just all grayed out. This was, you know, I was either happy or angry and that's it. And so what would happen is, is that I would, my, I would get home and my wife, you know, from church and she'd say, Hey, how'd it go today? Oh, you know, this and that. Oh, okay. And, and, um, and how did this work out? Ah, eh, you know, And she's like, well, how do you feel about that? And then I'd say, I don't know. Let me get my card out. I'll tell you how I feel. And so I would be, I'd kind of work like, no, I'm not here. Oh, frustrated. That's where I am. And, um, and then sometimes it'd be like, you know, it was more like frustrated. I was more like annoyed by what happened. And so this kind of helped me uh, put different vocabulary to what I, was, what I was feeling. And so the things that I used to think upset me, I realized, no, they, they weren't upsetting me. They were just causing me to feel uh, something different. What had a totally unintended consequence that is absolutely hilarious is now after nine years, my kids use this wheel on each other. And, uh, and I had no idea the hilarious joy that was gonna bring me. Is, um, so the other day I come home and uh, my daughter Olivia, who's 11, is talking to my son Xander, who's 14. Who was, uh, Xander was here playing guitar earlier today. And uh, that was my daughter Mia who sang the last song. And um, so anyway, uh, oh, appreciate that, appreciate that, I'll let her know. And so anyway, um, so, but, uh, so I came home and um, Livy is trying to create this like impromptu counseling session with Xander who isn't interested in having a counseling session, they're just having a conversation. And so he was saying something and he was saying that he was a little disappointed. And he, she's like, uh-huh, you're disappointed, but is that what you're really feeling? Let's get the wheel out. So she, they get the wheel out, and she's like, look, disappointed, yeah, no, there's more. She's like, you're either appalled or revolted. Which is it? He's like, I, I don't feel appalled or revolted, I just feel disappointed. She's like, no, the wheel says you're either appalled or revolted, and if you ask me, you look revolted. And, uh, and he's like, I'm not, I'm just disappointed. She's like, Xander, my hands are tied. The wheel says you're revolted, accept it. And uh, <laughs> I had no idea how much fun we were gonna have with this. And so now, oh, and by the way, I see there, there's like 50 people have taken pictures already. Can I just, uh, just if you wanna make this easy, here's what I'll do. Get your connection card out. Put your email address here. Well, wherever that is, put your email address. And somewhere on the back, write feelings wheel and our team will send you the picture so that you don't have like the picture with half my head and you're trying to like in, anyway so that I think will be a little easier so when you leave you'll see you're like what are those why are these people always carrying baskets you know some of you just you don't remember. drop your connection card there and we'll email it to you and then we'll start sending you emails about your car's extended warranty um so, so <laughs> we don't do that so but that'd be something if we did anyway so guys let me tell you this is what's really important this is so vital everything you feel can't be anger. The problem is, and this is the real challenge that men have, is that anger is the only socially acceptable emotion for men. But that has to change. If you want to be a man of God, that has to change. And here's why. Because a person's spiritual maturity does not rise above their emotional maturity. Let me say that again. A person's spiritual maturity does not rise above their emotional maturity. This is why you and I have all met people who know a lot about the Bible, but they're a jerk. Like, how is that? And they've been a Christian for a long time, and they're a jerk, but they know a lot about the Bible. Why? And they think they're spiritually mature. They're not. They just know some stuff about the Bible, because a person's spiritual maturity never rises above their emotional maturity. And if you want to be spiritually mature, you got to deal with the emotional stuff. We have to develop wisdom emotionally. It's part of how we develop spiritual maturity. It's how we develop spiritual awareness to know what God is doing in a given situation. Well, They decide they're going to leave Iconium and they're going to go to the next place, which is Lystra, which is where it gets really interesting. Look what happens. It says, In Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's room who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, he said with a loud voice, Stand up to your feet. And he leapt and walked. Now, when people saw, What Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their cities, uh, in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes." But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes, ran in, uh, in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness And that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And in these sayings, and with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, this is is so huge. If you want to live for an audience of one, the first thing we said is that you've got to ignore fickle people. The second thing is that you've got to reject the need for approval. And what I mean by the need for approval is not the approval of God. It's the approval of people, the approval of the crowd. Paul would say it this way. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, the approval that we can't live without is the approval of God. And here's why. Because the culture is always changing what it approves of. It is amazing if you will observe the things that the culture was touting three years ago are the things that people are being rejected for and canceled for today, and guess what? The people that things are the, the, the things that people are accepting today three years ago three years from now they'll be it will be the things that, that people will seek to cancel them for. Um, then why? Because it's always a moving target with a culture that has no real standards, and the challenge is what Paul, what happens when Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra? They see a man that is um, in need of healing. By the power of God, he's healed in the name of Jesus, and the place starts going nuts. Then they start thinking that Paul and Barnabas are gods. Now, let me give you a little bit of background so you can understand what's happening and why this was so huge in the city of Lystra. So, uh, there is, in Greek mythology, a story that was um, popularized by a Roman poet whose name was Ovid, uh, O-V-I-D, Ovid, tells the story of uh, Zeus and Hermes visiting the city of Lystra uh, disguised as mortals. They show up in the city and no one offers them hospitality. If you've seen the first two minutes of Beauty and the Beast, remember this old woman, no one offers, you know, all she could offer is a single rose and then she revealed herself to be a beautiful enchantress, right? That's, anyway, I don't know why I went uh, Shakespearean on you, but yet here we are, let's just accept it and move on. All right, so anyway... They, they show up, no one offers them, uh, these gods uh, dis- disguised as uh, mortals, no one offers them any hospitality except for one older couple. In their anger, Zeus and Hermes wipe out the entire city of Lystra, and to reward the couple, they turn them into two trees at the entrance of the city. Now, I got to be honest, if I'm that couple, I don't know how much of a reward that is. Thank you so much for the t- hospitality. We will now turn you into a shrub so I don't know, but who knows you know that's just me now um, so the city is always in high alert when strangers come to town, especially two people who have the the seemingly the power to heal and and that's why the priest of Zeus comes out. They set up a temple for Zeus in that city, waiting for him to come back. They're like, this is the sequel. This is the one. This is the moment. And Paul starts preaching. And I had got this question after the last service. And that is, was, um, was Paul um, validating the story? What Paul was doing, and, and by the way, if the Bible is talking about Greek mythology here, and this was the question that I got, um, the Bible is simply acknowledging that it existed. Just like in Egypt, Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped many different gods when all the plagues happened. Uh, the ten plagues were plagues on the gods of Egypt. They're acknowledging that it existed. Um, Greek mythology, which by the way, Greek and Roman mythology are exactly the same. The Romans co-opted Greek mythology and just gave everybody a new name. Uh, they gave them all um, Roman names, but... It's all the same players, but there, this is just saying that it was, it was in existence. This was part of the, this was one of the different cultures that they were uh, dealing with. And so, but this is the background to why the people in the city were responding that way. Now, Paul's message to them, if you notice, uh, Paul's message are, we're just, we're not gods. We're just people. And you should turn from these useless things to the living God. He's saying this, this pantheon of gods that you worship aren't real. There's one God who created everything, and every good thing that has come into your life has come from him. And even though he says all of that, they still are just barely restraining themselves because they want to worship him uh, and, and Barnabas. And then look what happens in verse 19, and this is why I tell you that you cannot live for the crowd. In verse 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there to Lystra, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul. And dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas for Derby. Friends, listen to me. The people in Lystra went from, "We, you are a God." We are going to worship you. What is your favorite type of sacrifice? We are going to sacrifice to you. They went from there. One conversation later, they're like, yeah, we're not going to worship you. Turns out we're going to murder you. Hope that's okay. And uh, this is insanity. By the way, in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about this moment when when, they, when they, they, they tried to kill him. He says this, from the Jews five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. By the way, it's 2023, I need to clarify, that is with rocks, okay? That is not, it's not like, I didn't know it was 420 in Lystra. Not, no, it was with rocks, so let's, let's move on, all right? One, uh, three times I was shipwrecked, and uh, one of them will be at the end of the book of Acts, that was one of the times. Uh, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And then here's the question. You're reading this. You're like, why does someone put up with this? It's not because they're trying to make the crowd happy or live for the approval of people. It's because this guy's living for the approval of God and trying to fulfill God's call in his life. Paul's message to the people in Lystra was something they did not want to hear. And so and he's telling them there isn't a pantheon of gods, there's one God. Listen, there are moments when doing the right thing is gonna get you into trouble. And these are the moments when you've gotta decide if you're, whose approval you're living for. And I just wanna tell you that sometimes... Um, We all do this. We just have to realize it and then try to correct it. When I, most people aren't deciding, you know, I really live for the approval of others. I put on Instagram what my two possible options are and whatever gets the most votes is what I do, right? Nobody's, nobody's living like that. But what it means is, and we've all had moments where what we want to do is just, we don't ever want to appear kind of out of step with what's happening. And so, at times, we will do things maybe that we don't necessarily want to do, but because we don't want to appear out of step with the crowd, with culture, with culture or whatnot. And usually, that ends up a total mess. Sometimes we say, "Well, I just don't want people to think differently of me," and so we make certain decisions. And I, 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 I remember a moment that this happened. Uh, this is probably about twenty years ago. I was in Southern California for a conference. And I had the opportunity one evening, and really this is one of the things that makes California amazing, is that I was, that afternoon, um, I was, this is the day before the conference started, I was in, I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt in Hollywood. And then um, that evening, we got into a car, we drove to San Bernardino, and we went skiing because it was snowing. And it really is just, California is an amazing place. It just happens to be run by crazy people. And so anyway, now even though I grew up in Boston, uh, and I grew up in snow. I had never been skiing. But I, you know, I just figured I was so familiar with snow, I just figured I'd just have to get used to the skis, and that would, that would be it. Little did I know that skiing is impossible. And anytime you see someone skiing, that's CGI. So anyway, um, so I go, <laughs> so I go up on the lift, and I'm with my friend Steve, and um, He's such a great guy. He's a missionary for years. And so anyway, I'm with Steve and um, he says, we're on the lift together. And he says, Bob, look, when you get off the lift, your tendency is gonna be to push off. Don't push off. Just let, when you just put your feet down, the lift is gonna push you a little bit and then you'll just kind of glide down the hill and then you'll pick which slope you wanna go on. And I'm like, oh, that sounds easy enough. Well, I get to the top. I'm, I put my feet down and I think, you know, if I just push off, I can get this party started. So I just, and sure enough, I push off and I fell so hard. I knocked, I knocked the wind out of myself. And, uh, and so anyway, that my friends resuscitated me and, um, and then Steve, cause he's been, you know, these guys, all of them had been skiing multiple times. Um, I was the only one who it was his first time skiing. So my friend Steve says, look, we're only here for two hours. The, the, go to the furthest slope, and you'll see it. it's called the bunny slope. That's where you need to go. And, um, and then you need to learn how to use the skis, and you're not going to hurt yourself. So I went on the bunny slope twice. And, uh, and, and you know, once again, I, I went on the bunny slope, and all I saw were little kids and the elderly. And I was like 25, and I'm like, these are not my people. I, I want to find my people. So anyway... I went down. I felt pretty good about the bunny slope. I'm like, listen, how hard could this possibly be? So I get, I go on the lift again the third time. I come off the lift. I just stand. It pushes me. I do everything right. And now I have a choice to make. And I'm like, I'm not going, I'm not going to go on the bunny slope and because I saw people. I was at, the, when you're at the top of the mountain and then you have to decide what slope and you kind of start make. you're like a grown man and you start making your way to the bunny slope. Let me tell you something. People are not thinking good things about you they so like, this guy. <laughs> you could have training wheels on your bike. Is that what's going You know, and it's, just like, it's like, you know what? Anyway, but I was, I, was, I was deeply hurt by that. So anyway, so I was like, you know what? I'm not doing that. Let's up the ante. So um, I wasn't ready for the black diamond, which is like, you know, this is where the Olympians go. Uh, but I decided I was going to go in the intermediate, which was the blue slope. Now, That's where all my friends were anyway. They were all intermediate skiers. And I'm like, I've been down this twice. I'm basically an intermediate skier. And uh, so I, by the way, I take the plunge having no idea how fast it would be. But I get to the top and I just go, just like in the movies. And I just went, you know, at least that's how, in the skiing game I had on Atari, that's what people did. And so I just, (laughs) whoom, and I went for it. And um, I was standing straight up I mean, give or take, about five seconds. And um, when I went like this, and you know know how, once again, I have to go back to the Atari game that I used to play, but people were kind of leaning forward. So that's what I did. I leaned like heavy. Apparently, I leaned forward too far because I did not fall on my back. I fell on my face. And then I started picking up steam as I was going down this hill, right? I want you to also imagine I'm screaming, the entire time, which I, I don't want to reenact for you because it's going to bring back some bad mojo. So anyway, um, as I'm, ha- I'm going down this hill, what, my boot comes off <laughs> with the ski still attached. That's gone. Then as I'm screaming down the hill, there is this, what I can only assume is about a 12-year-old kid on a snowboard who's keeping pace with me as he is laughing and having a great time, and then I see him as all of this is happening, and I say, "I know what I'm doing tonight. I'm going to jail for murder. I'm gonna get on solid ground, and I'm going to kill a 12-year-old." And so, anyway, uh, that that part wasn't very Christian, but it was what I was thinking. So. Uh, If you've been skiing, you know that at the bottom of the hill, they have this, like this wall. It's like, you can't keep going or you'll end up in the parking lot. So I am going, and then it kind of, because eventually it kind of flattens out, but I had picked up so much momentum. I was, you know, I was like a bullet headed down. And so I get down and I hit the wall. My friends were standing there. Steve looks down and he's like, Bob. What are you doing on this slope? I told you to go to the bunny slope. As he is saying that to me, my boot with the ski attached shows up. <laughs> Bob, did you lose something? You know what? It's like people wonder why I have low self-esteem. People like that. That's why. And so you know what? So I, uh, so I get up and grab my boot and I went inside and had hot chocolate until our time was done as soaking wet, all right? And, <laughs> and you know why? And here's the part. You know why? Because of a face that people made at the top of the mountain. That's why. It's just like, I just didn't want them to look at me like that, and this, I'm telling you, this is what we do. Um, it's, it's this idea of being um, influenced by the crowd. It's never like a decision where we say, you know, I'm going to let the crowd tell me what to do. No, it's, 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 so, it's so much more subtle than that, right? It, it's like, you know, you're driving your car, you're happy with your car until your neighbor gets a new car. And you're like, I can't believe that guy paid that much for that car. Wow, what a rip-off. And then you're fine. Then the next day you get in your car and you're like, this piece of junk And it doesn't matter how old it is. And then you start thinking about that guy. You know how hard I work? I work harder than that guy. How does he have a new car? We do that. And next thing you know, this is why, this is a social phenomenon. One person on a street gets a new car, and new cars start popping up everywhere on that street. Why? Because it's what we all do. We all get somehow influenced by the crowd, even though we don't realize it. And listen, let me tell you something. It's Christmas time, and this is the season where... People are going to try to get us to commit to things. And sometimes they're getting us to commit to good things for good reasons. And sometimes not so much. And what will happen is, is that th- there will be, and let me just give you just um, a lesson, right? Just, this is like just part of being an adult. Is that you're always going to disappoint people, right? Every time you say yes to something, you said yes to being here. You know what that means? You said no to everything else. And I and I'm grateful. I appreciate you being here with us. I really do. Yeah. Uh, we're glad you're here. And so but here's the thing. It's just the reality. You said no to everything else. At least at this time you can do whatever you want after, but it's just it's just what it's just what takes place. And so what you've got to decide to do is live your life based on convictions and not guilt. Because everybody's going to try to get you to do something. And, when, and when, when just like telling you to do it doesn't work, they're going to try to guilt you. And some of, you know, But guilt isn't a great motivator. And you're thinking, well, my mom's Cuban. That's her first language. And, uh, I, and I understand that. Um, but you know what? You've got, you got to kind of rise above that. And you've got to just say, hey, you know, I, guilt doesn't work on me. Guilt's like Jedi mind tricks. They only work on the weak-minded. Um, and so you've got to decide And if you know what, when you will decide to live your life based on convictions and call out the guilt, people will stop trying to manipulate you. But listen, it doesn't matter how much you do. For some people, it will never be enough. There was a guy that was healed in Lystra and people were rejoicing, ready to worship Paul and Barnabas. And all it took was one conversation with another group and they stoned him to death. And listen, that should be a powerful example for us. Well, look at what happens. I had to finish this message 10 minutes ago, so let me just read this real quick. So, um, but listen, I know I'm over, but all of this is all free of charge, this, all this extra, all right? <laughs> so here's what he says, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, underline this, we must through many tribulations Enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church, prayed with fasting, commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. After, when they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done through them and when he that he had opened the door of faith to the gentiles and so they stayed there a long time with the disciples if you pause there and give me your attention last thing i want to tell you and then we're done and that is if i want to if i want to live for an audience of one i need to embrace god's plan paul and barnabas travel back this is the end of their missionary journey if you can show me the map again they get to derby that's the final city then they go back to lystra iconium Antioch encouraging all these churches that they've started while they were there. They go down to Perga. Then Atalia is where they get the boat and go back to Antioch, which is where this whole thing began, and the church that sent them out to begin with a couple chapters ago. And this is probably over a year uh, of, of travel. But one of the things they tell, and this is what I want to focus on just for the couple minutes we have left, and that is they tell them that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Now, I wanna talk about this as we close because sometimes we think that becoming a Christian is supposed to make everything better. And by the way, becoming a Christian makes some things better. But sometimes it makes certain things worse. And, and, and sometimes we think like, no, 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 but I became a Christian. How could it not be easier? God is on our team. That means we should win every game. Every situation should work out. And by the way, calories probably shouldn't count either. And uh, that's just how that should be. But that's not how it works because God uses difficulty to grow people into the people he wants them to become. And let me tell you something. I wish it was different. I wish easy times made us grow. If that were the case, Disney would be the number one destination for spiritual growth, right? Because everything's easy, everything's fun, but you don't grow spiritually at Disney World. Only your waste grows. And it grows in proportion to how your bank account shrinks. So, but... But, you know, it's easy to say yes to God when things are going our way, everything's blessed, we always get the first spot at Publix, you know. But when we say yes to God, even when things aren't going well, when we reject what the crowd wants us to do, even when things aren't going well, listen, this is where spiritual growth and maturity is formed. You see, remember that I told you a moment ago that they thought Paul was a god and then they stoned Paul? at Lystra. There's a lot of scholars that believe that Paul died when he was stoned in Lystra, and then God brought him back. So whether it was they thought he was dead or he was dead, scholars debate that. But what scholars don't debate is what happened in that moment. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about an experience that he had when he was taken to heaven and saw some things that it, they, they were not even things you could utter. He says it like this. It's in your notes. It says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or whether out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, in the Jewish mind, let me just explain what third heaven means. Um, The first heaven was the sky. The second heaven was uh, the atmosphere, or outer space. The third heaven was the dwelling place of God. What Paul is saying is I was taken up to the dwelling place of God and I saw spiritual realities with my own eyes that I had never seen before. And it it, it changed him. And it changed him because he gets stoned, whether to death or seemingly to death. And then he has this kind of vision when he seemingly dies or God brings him back, however that works, there's some debate. But it says this, um, when the, in verse 20, it says, when the disciples gathered around him and certainly prayed for him, he rose up and went back into the city. There's a boldness that comes from walking with God and trusting him that will cause you to have courage to do things other people could never do. Because this is where the battles are won. The crowd wants to stone us, and that's when God wants to give us a revelation of himself that will transform us. And in the end, many from the crowd are won over, but we never win the crowd over by giving into the crowd or trying to live up to the expectations of the crowd. Instead, when we live for an audience of one, God starts to win over the crowd the same way he won us over. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that reality and that promise that if we will put the kingdom of God first and your righteousness that all these other things will be added to us Lord do that work help us not to be moved by guilt not to be moved by manipulation but instead to be moved by conviction and by the leading of your spirit as you want to lead and direct us so God I pray that you would do that work in us through us for us and we prayed in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, All you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.